Hello, everyone. This is a special message from Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So, I recently posted a patron only lecture on the real or historical King Arthur on Patreon. And so, ordinarily, I would just give a little teaser snippet from that piece. But this time, I also want to give you some updates and comments on the podcast and also on myself and what I'm up to. You probably know I, I don't say much about myself or my activities, my views on this podcast. That's not what it's about. But there are a few things I should mention that might be of interest or relevant at this moment. And that's particularly because I just surpassed the threshold of 75 patrons after which I promised that I would start producing material on a regular, ideally weekly basis. So at this point, it is now more remunerative for me to work on this podcast than to teach classes as an adjunct. It pays more than any one given class. So that makes it possible for me to focus on this as a higher priority than teaching in the classroom. And teaching in the classroom isn't happening this semester anyway, of course. It's all online regardless. So that's not how I prefer to teach anyway. I'm going to make it my goal now to try to start producing every week and posting perhaps every Tuesday. Seems like it would be a good schedule. I have several subjects that I've been looking into just in recent weeks or for a very long time. I threw out a few of those on a Twitter poll on the Historian Explaining Twitter account. So there's still some time. If you have any opinion, please go and vote for what you like the most, and then I'll just do the one that I want to do anyway. No, that's, that's actually not true. <laughs> I'll take it under advisement. So at the same time, as everyone knows, this is still a time of crisis and of mourning for many people. So I just wanted to observe that and express sympathies, condolences for everyone who's dealing with the effects of COVID-19 or other tragedies and disasters going on around the world. In particular, I wanted to mark this country just recently lost Congressman John Lewis, who was a great moving spirit of the long civil rights movement, you could say, and the continuing civil rights movement. I also wanted to mention the passing a few weeks ago of Michael Brooks, whom some of you may have heard of, who was a political commentator and podcaster. He's a commentator that I followed sometimes and often appreciated, even if I did not agree with all of his views and conclusions. I had no particular personal dealings or connections with Michael Brooks. He's someone that I watched and listened to sometimes casually, but even someone like me who maybe didn't always agree with his perspective, who was not a fanatic, still could see how much he was motivated and guided by a sense of goodwill towards all of humankind. And that, I think, is something to admire and appreciate. So I wanted to add my voice to the many people who have come forward to speak about what they gained and what they lost with the passing of Michael Brooks. He happened to be about my age, so it was pretty shocking, completely unexpected. 
It also happens that last year, a bit more than a year ago, I also lost a very old friend who died very unexpectedly in a hiking accident, who also was pretty much exactly my age. He had been my roommate one year of college. He was a sibling of my fraternity, and he was a very unique and special person. He taught me to read Japanese hiragana writing and introduced me to all sorts of things, particularly in relation to his mother's native country of Japan. And so it's familiar to me, the sort of shock and unreality at the same time that it can give you a chance to really reflect on and process how much you did gain and learn from that totally irreplaceable person. So I did think it would be good to mention and make note of the loss of Michael Brooks, although, although he was a political commentator, and in my view, I am not, at least certainly on this podcast. I maybe sometimes make reference to recent or contemporary politics. It's often an unavoidable thing, but I do not think of this as a political podcast. It's a historical podcast, and I try as best I can to present a truthful picture of the past as independent as I possibly can of my particular political commitments or biases. If you look at my personal Twitter or if you look at my other writings over the last few years, you can get some sense of where my political views are. It happens that later this month, another article of mine should be coming out in a magazine called American Affairs. When that does appear, I'll post the link if you want to take a look. It might interest you. If you don't want to know my political views, then you don't have to look. <laughs> but it's just as much a historical article as political. And finally, it also happens that one of the major activities of my life right now that I'm trying to balance and coordinate with my various pursuits and that I hope will harmonize well with producing this podcast on a regular basis as best I can is that I'm running for a local office. I've often told people for years, everybody should run for every office, every race should be contested, the voters should have a real choice. And so I'm putting my money where my mouth is and doing my best under constrained conditions to make a run of this. So if anyone is curious about that, I'll post the link to my very embarrassing campaign website. And I encourage you, if you're curious about it, to take a look, see what you think, and give support if you can. But for now, I'm just going to focus on extending thanks and gratitude to my many wonderful patrons. As of the end of the month, I had 76 active paying patrons. Right now, as I record this morning, I have 77. And before I play a teaser clip from my last King Arthur lecture, I'll again name my generous patrons, beginning with those who have contributed the largest amount over the entire lifespan of the podcast. And those are Carl Biagetti, Ellen Siskind, Ken Muller, Michael Biagetti, Judy Siskind, Dan Hernandez, John Sullivan, Christine Pacheco, Ozzy Elowich, Carrie Feibel, Gail and Jim Elowich, Peter Goldstein, David Lavery, Rob Balgley, Joseph Murray, Adam Kath, John, 
Brooke Meachin, Karen Fagan, Kirill Trapeznikov, Jeffrey Schulenberger, Amandeep Boyer, Christine Gilani, Anonymous, Susan Marsh, Rebecca Mann, Alex Muller, and Douglas Horgan. And my other patrons include Colin Gorey, Richard Murray, Slate Mills, Karen Plaschutznig, Benjamin Newcomb Groiser, Jeannie Lyons, Kweku, Julia M., Paul is East of the Pecos, Monica Kuniyoshi, Mike Coffey, Christopher Grady, Shamant Jila, Michael Sokolovsky, Heather Anderson, Andrew Daldano, David Aslanian, Martin Casey, R. Shackelford 53, ZMK5, Joe, Steve Hamlet, Chris Hoffman, June, Spencer, Eric Daffron, Orion Ashmore, Carol Schriefter, Joel Star Avalos, Lars Rotem Krangnes, Siyuan Soon, Anonymous, Kirsten Lamb, Warren Green, Andrew Smith, Oi Ung, Oliver, Debbie Davison, Ichiba, Sam, David J.J. Newsom, Frank Nagurney, Colleen, Elizabeth Chamberlain, Don Roberts, Sandrew, Michael Dooley, Suzanne Lee, and Piotr Golus. Thank you. So here now is a literally randomly selected passage from my discussion of the historical King Arthur and whether or not he was a real person. In the southwest of England, near the town of Cadbury in Somerset. So in the early 1500s, an antiquary named John Leland, who was patronized by Henry VIII and who was a Renaissance humanist, who was interested in tracing out and discovering the earliest possible verifying evidence about historical legends. John Leland wanted to uncover. He might have been, you could say, the first quester for the historical Arthur. He wanted to find the real sites and events of Arthur's career. And he went searching for Camelot, and he noted two towns, small villages, close to each other in Somerset, each of which has the word camel in its name, West Camel and Queen Camel. And he theorized that these villages might be connected to some kind of royal site going back to the pre-Anglo-Saxon age. Cam, as I said, has this royal significance and specifically Queen Camel suggests that maybe there was some royal court there or nearby. So Leland looked around these towns in Somerset near Cadbury and he found that the local people in the area pointed to South Cadbury Hill Fort, a large terraced, apparently fortified hill south of Cadbury that very likely was the site of an Iron Age hill fort dating back to before the Roman era, 2,000 and more years ago. So one could look at South Cadbury Hill and say, well, this is just another Iron Age hill fort like any number of others around Britain. But the local people claimed that they had found various important artifacts around the area, many Roman coins and other strange and unfamiliar antiquities. And they commonly called it Camalate, something very close to Camelot, and that, in Leland's words, Arthur resorted there often. So they don't exactly claim that it is a palace or necessarily a capital, but that it was connected in some way with Arthur's activities. So Leland is the first to float this idea that what seems to be an 
Iron Age Hill Fort was in fact occupied and used for centuries after, including during the Arthur period. Nothing very systematic was done with this information until the 1960s when archaeologists began excavating. And in fact, they found foundations of very large palisades fortifying the entire perimeter of the hilltop and a very large, strong gatehouse that would have controlled the entranceway into this palisaded enclosure. They also found very rich remains of pottery coming from the Mediterranean, just like at Tintagel. And it seems that there was trade and travel connecting this site on South Cadbury Hill to this larger Mediterranean and European world, just the same as there was at Tintagel in the same period. The fortifications around South Cadbury Hill would have required at least 800 people to man these walls effectively. There's about a mile total of wall surrounding this hilltop, and it clearly had to be a major site supported by a lot of population and money and trade and power in the late 400s and early 500s. So critics will point out this is not a unique hill fort from this period. There are many cases where it seems that old Iron Age hill forts were reoccupied and refortified during the Dark Age after the Roman withdrawal. And it's possible that the story, the figure of Arthur, was simply retroactive.